This is all pre-COVID. So let's see how COVID has affected your memory. Remember what the defining mission of the church is. Let me give you the first word. Unleashing. Unleashing the power of Jesus in people's lives. Unleashing it through discipleship. Unleashing it through leadership. Unleashing it through service. Unleashing it through a renewed campus here on Parker Road. Unleashing it in an online community devoted to uh, just a number of people that are probably too vast and too diverse to measure. Well, as part of that community, both here in the building and look at you all. You never know this is a long weekend. Did you know this is a long weekend, actually? <laughs> uh, the people who are joining us here, good morning to you. The people who are joining us online, hi and welcome to Mississauga City. This is Vision Weekend. At our church. And we get excited about this because it's a chance to be able to recalibrate. I mean, how often do you feel like you need that, especially now? When the world seems to have tipped on its axis a little bit, just to draw ourselves back to first principles. Why are we here? Why is it we do what we do? What is it that compels you to get up early on a Sunday morning and start your computer and log in or pull on a pair of dress pants that you've not worn in months and months? and make the drive to Cawthor Road, put on the uncomfortable mask to be here, but more importantly, to take what starts here and to spread it day by day through the network of relationships at work and in family and friendship into the world. Why is it that we do this? This is Vision Sunday, and it's a chance to recenter. When I went to university, Nick, I also studied psychology. My first degree was in clinical psychology. From time to time, I thought about becoming a psychologist. But then I started actually doing some therapy, and I realized I didn't enjoy it very much, and I wasn't very good at it. People actually got worse the longer they came to see me. So not a good quality in a therapist. At the same time, I was working voluntarily part-time as a student chaplain, and I began to feel within me this strange sort of tug into the life and the well-being and the flourishing of the local church. And when I was studying in psychology, I don't think any of my professors ever said, yeah, if you want to change people's lives, go work for the church. But I found myself haunted and captivated and, and inspired by the idea that the mission of the church has everything to do with the transformation of human lives. If you follow Jesus, he wants us to be well. One of my favorite authors, Sheldon, is a man who's now in his 90s. He's familiar to you. I think he's one of your favorites as well. Frederick Beekner is his name. He grew up in a very unchurched family. He says his dad committed suicide when he was a young boy, but he became this brilliant writer. He lived in this sophisticated, very non-religious East Coast community. And against all odds, one day in a large church in New York, he met Jesus. He ended up going to seminary. He became a Presbyterian minister. This was very puzzling, very, very disorienting for his community and for his family. He says one day he was at a dinner party when a well-educated, well-meaning woman turned to him and said, I hear you're entering into the ministry. Was that your own idea or were you poorly advised? <laughs> this is what he writes. The answer that she could not have heard, even if I had given it, 
was that it was not an idea at all, neither my own nor anyone else's. It was like a lump in the throat. It was an itching in the feet. It was a stirring in the blood. It was a name which, when I wrote it down in a dream, I knew was a name worth dying for, even if I was not brave enough to do the dying myself and could not even name the name for sure. Come unto me, Jesus said, all ye who labor and who are heavy laden, and I will give you a high and driving peace. I will give you a purpose worth living for and a hope worth dying for. Somehow, that burning, that, that drivenness gets caught up and expressed in the gathering of God's people into the church. The church was his idea. The church is his legacy. As the church, we are his family. And somehow miraculously, mysteriously, fallibly, we are his presence on earth. And so I want to talk to you today about the church, about the beauty of the church. I want to talk about our church, about why it matters. And I want to start by taking you back to the very first conversation in history about the church. A lot of people, I think, don't know where it started, where it came from. So here's where it starts. One day, Jesus asked his disciples what it is that people are saying about him. Who do people think that he is? And Peter says, you're the Messiah, the Christ, the son of the living God. And then Jesus blesses Peter. Now, that wouldn't have been unusual. Rabbis would often bless their students when they got the right answer. But what Jesus goes on to say would have come as a great surprise. And here are the words. You can follow along. Matthew 16, verses 17 through 19. Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you this, you are Peter, the rock. And on this rock, I will build my, and here's the first time the word ever appears, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades, the gates of hell, will not overcome it. One scholar says that that last statement is the most discussed verse in the most discussed paragraph in the entire gospel. I will build my church. The disciples' first response probably would have been, uh, Jesus, what's a church? It's the first time we ever see the word. No religious leader ever said anything like that. In fact, no religious leader since ever says anything like that. Moses never said, I'm going to build my synagogue. Buddha doesn't say, I'm going to build my temple. And Muhammad doesn't say, I'm going to build my mosque. In the ancient world, there were these tribal religions, and there were these philosophical schools, and there were wisdom traditions, but this was different. This is different than anything the world had known before. Jesus is saying that he's going to build this, this all-inclusive new community. A community that wouldn't just tolerate, but would embrace every gender and every ethnicity, every nationality, every culture, every language, every race, every status. They would make a family even of their enemies, like slave versus free, 
like Jews versus Gentiles, like Romans versus barbarians. A community that would have as its mission not the enriching and the building up of its own members, but the sacrificing of themselves for the enrichment of people who are on the outside. To bring the knowledge of God to every person, to bring the justice of God to oppressive situations, to bring the generosity of God to people in need, to bring the forgiveness of God even into the lives of those who would persecute this newfound community called the church. And they would do all of it with a humility that would bow down to honor the most demeaned and humiliated slave and with a courage that would defy the threat of an emperor even while continuing to pray for those in power. You begin to get a sense that that there had never been anything like this in existence before. Nothing had, had ever been brought onto the fields of humanity like this. This was Jesus' great original idea. We think of ourselves, I suppose, as an innovative generation, do we not? 21st century, creative, innovative, more progress over the past 50 to 100 years than in all of the combined centuries that lead up to this moment. So let's take your creativity, your originality, and let's put it to work. Let's imagine that you were a penniless carpenter living 2,000 years ago, and your task, your responsibility would be to create a movement of people that would live for thousands of years. And among the things that it would achieve, it would launch more hospitals, more research universities, more relief organizations. It would inspire more art than any other organization in human history. It would spread to every continent, every culture. It would attract billions of followers. And not only would it still exist, it would be growing 2,000 years later. What would you do? What would be your first step? Well, Jesus the carpenter, whatever you think of him, as a matter of history, this is what he did. He loved, and he taught, and he healed, and he died unforgettably on a cross, and he was resurrected. And then in this passage... It's the first time that the disciples get a glimpse of really how big this man is they've been following, of his real identity. Truly, Peter says, you're the Messiah. You're the Savior, the Son of the living God. And now they're ready for their first glimpse of just how big the project is that he came to initiate in the world. His project is the church. Maybe that sounds too small, but, but that's it. That's the main thing. Jesus is putting all of his eggs in that basket, and he's going to do it through them. And, and probably their heads are ready to explode. They didn't sign up for the church building business. They signed up for the rabbi following business. A lot of people signed up for that one. You learn Torah, you learn the rules, you find yourself a nice wife, you have yourself some kids, you live a nice life but build something that that nobody has ever heard of, too terrifying and magnificent to describe, sacrifice time and money and energy, have people laugh at you, be persecuted, travel all around the world, go to jail, end up even being martyred. Hey, Peter, was this your idea or 
Were you badly advised? Only here's the thing. This was the chance of a lifetime. This was worth living for. This was worth dying for. This made catching fish and collecting taxes, living to make money or gain security or make a name for yourself, build a resume. It made all those things just look small. There are a couple of key things to notice here in those verses. Who's the church going to belong to? Jesus said, I'm going to build my church. I'm going to build my church. I'm I'm not going to build some churches, Peter's church here, Andrew's church there, Thomas's church, it's a church for doubting people, Zacchaeus's church, it's for small people, whatever it is. No, my church. We are a Jesus church. We love him. We study him. We follow him. We point other people to him before we ever point to us. We have one purpose, and that's to help people know, identify, understand, and follow this man. It's my church, Jesus said. Who's going to build it? Jesus said, I, I will build my church. Jesus claims he's got this. Really? You know what? That is such a relief for people who are in church leadership, right, Tim? I mean, I was thinking, if you've been around churches much, have you ever noticed how messed up churches can get? Not just attenders, right? Church leaders can be some of the most messed up, dysfunctional, needy, maladapted people in the world. I know. My wife has been married to one for a long time now. (laughs) Tell you stories and curl your hair. But how is it that the church keeps going? Because Jesus is building it. Often he's building it in quiet, unseen places, out there in the margins, through the poor in spirit through those who mourn, through the uneducated, through unpaid volunteers who nobody but Jesus think are important at all, through a little group of people selflessly praying week by week by week, through a widow whose tiny little offering is in reality, in God's eyes, the biggest gift of all, through people like you. He's building his church. And how powerful is it going to be? Listen to that expression. The gates of hell. I mean, that, that was a, a common expression that people would use when they talked about the ultimate human enemies and about death and hell itself. It's, you remember in the bush here, we started talking about the mother of things, the mother of all evils, the mother of all wars. This is the mother of all adversaries. Jesus is so remarkably confident. Notice what he says. He doesn't say, when the forces of hell are unleashed, the gates of the church will be able to keep them out. That's not the image here. He says, when the forces of the church are unleashed, the gates of hell won't be able to keep the church out. He's saying that the church is on the march with forces the likes of which the world has never seen. Love and mercy and grace and compassion, forgiveness, justice, generosity, humility, truth. All these things have been unleashed and the gates of hell will crumple before them. Darkness is going down. It doesn't look like it, but it is. What would this church be like? 
this church thing that nobody had ever heard of, that nobody had ever thought of. Well, Jesus begins to teach and model these three great truths about humanity under the reign of God. If you want language for the church, there it is. The church is humanity living under the reign of God. These three great truths involve phrases that are really core to our identity as the church. You've heard them before. You've heard them here. The longer you've been around, the more you've heard them. You've heard them in other places, probably. What you may not know about the phrase is that they come directly from Jesus, from the teaching, the ministry, the modeling of Jesus. They are essentially what Jesus tries to bring to the people of God through this little incubator of the church. This incubator that would grow and and release people from the nursery into the world with a movement that would change everything. So here they are, the, the three phrases. The first, the first great truth that Jesus modeled and taught was that now through Jesus, everyone receives a welcome. Everyone is welcome. You know, in Jesus' day, it was commonly thought that certain people were welcome in religious settings, in the temple, uh, In the synagogue, they were welcome to come before God, but others not so much. If there was one characteristic about Jesus, this was his signature. It scandalized everybody. It's how he would accept, welcome, embrace, include, talk with, touch anyone who came to him. Not just Jews, his own people, but Gentiles, Samaritans, lepers, the unclean, slaves, tax collectors, soldiers, paralytics, prostitutes. He's so famous for this that even his enemies acknowledge it. One man's trying to trap him. He says, this is Matthew twenty-two sixteen. Matthew twenty-two sixteen. Teacher, we know that you're sincere, that you teach the ways of God in accordance with truth, and that you show deference to no one. Jesus was known for this. Matthew twenty-two fifteen. For you do not regard people with partiality. There's no us and them. Anybody who comes receives a welcome. He's so famous for this that he's heavily criticized for it. The accusations hurled at Jesus, like this one, Luke 15, 2. This man welcomes sinners and he eats with them. What kind of religious man is that? In fact, in the Gospel of Luke, the last recorded conversation of Jesus before he died isn't with a saint It isn't with a follower, it's with a criminal, with a man hanging on a cross next to him, who just says to him in his dying moments, Jesus, would you remember me? And Jesus looks over and says, okay, (laughs) you too, you're in, you're with me. It's like he couldn't help himself. This is his community, you see. This is what he was starting. And then after Jesus died, the strangest thing happened. The ancient world generally had very little regard for slaves, but slavery was ubiquitous. Uh, Greek philosophers, uh, Aristotle said, all non-Greeks were slaves by birth. 
As a slave, you could be tortured, degraded, used for sex, killed, killed just for growing old and becoming less useful. But this odd little community, this group, the church, remembered how their founder, Jesus, one day took a towel in a basin and got right down on his knees and washed the disciples' feet as though he himself were a slave and said, you need to do this too. They cherished slaves. They came to call themselves slaves. We were slaves for Christ. They were so well known for this that Christianity came to be called by its opponents a slave religion. You understand it wasn't intended as a compliment, but they wore it like a badge of honor. Yep, that's us. Slaves are us. The ancient world generally had little use for the poor. But this strange little community, the church, remembered what Jesus said to them in in Luke 6. Blessed are the poor. They remembered once that Jesus told a rich young ruler it was okay to sell everything, to give it to the poor. They welcomed the poor. They did so, so much that a Roman emperor opposed to Christianity said this about why the church kept spreading. He said, I think the poor were overlooked by the pagan priests, but seen by these impious Galileans. That's what he called the Christians who noticed them and devoted themselves to generosity. They support not only their own poor, but ours as well. And everyone can see that our people lack aid from us. Beginning to get a sense of it. I mean, do you understand that that there was a day when this group of people loved God and loved each other and loved God's world so much that a miracle began to happen? This unprecedented little community formed and then it grew. One of their famous early leaders said, Galatians 3.28, this is the new reality of the church. There is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, neither male nor female, no more barriers, no hostility, for all are one in Christ Jesus. So folks, here's the question. Who's welcome at our church? Everybody. Poor and rich. Black, white, young, old, liberal, conservative. Atheist, agnostic, skeptic, Hindu, Muslim, Buddhist, Wiccan, gay, straight, trans, depressed, happy, addicted, married, single, divorced, got it all together, have it all falling apart. You are welcome here. Come find Jesus. If you came here today because you love Jesus, or if you came here today or watching online because under protest, somebody else who loves Jesus made you do it and you can't get out of it. If you came because you're desperate for help and you're not sure where else to look, you've tried everything, can I just say it's not an accident that you're here? That somehow it's part of Jesus' design that he said he was going to build his church, and his church is a place where everyone is welcome, and everyone means you. If you're a follower of Jesus and this is your church, that means that, like Jesus, you have a heart that says welcome uh, to everybody who comes into your life at 
any moment. You don't have to agree with them. You don't have to approve of their choices or everything in their life, but, but you still have to be able to welcome them. From the very beginning, Jesus' church has grown one person, one relationship, one conversation, one expression of care at a time. That's how he builds it. And you just never know who God is sending into your life. You never know where somebody is waiting or aching for a spiritual conversation. One prayer, one invitation from you. This is the great truth now from Jesus. Everyone is welcome. No one is left outside. Second great truth that Jesus clarified and proclaimed in his day is that in God's eyes and in God's care, nobody is perfect. Everyone is welcome, but nobody is perfect. Say that. Nobody is perfect. Did you believe it when you said it? Say it again. Nobody is perfect. You're allowed to talk through your masks. The, the singing thing, by the way, doesn't come from us. That's, that's legislation that comes through the Department of Health. We're not trying to kill your singing voice. We can't wait to be able to sing together. But anyway, nobody is perfect. This is important because religious communities, including the Christian ones, have a way of dividing people up into the good guys and the bad guys, the insiders and the outsiders. And quite often we do it in the most superficial ways. And Jesus was famous for insisting that true goodness is not a matter of outward behavior, not appearances, but of something that's transformed inside. A stream of thoughts and feelings and desires and perceptions and intentions that only God can bring forth. Jesus once put it like this, Luke 18, 19. No one is really good except God alone. Nobody's perfect. And actually he insisted that it's religious leaders. This is kind of sobering for people like Nathan and Sheldon and myself. It's religious leaders who pride themselves on correct belief and behavior who are in fact most at risk and need God the most. On the outside, you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside, full of hypocrisy, darkness. So in this new community, in this community, no hiding, no pretending, no impressing other people, no reputation building. When you go to work, you have to look strong. When, when you go to school, you may have to look smart. We're like the island of misfit toys, though. This is where we recognize and publicly confess our own spiritual and moral inadequacy. You don't have to clean yourself up to come here. In fact, you don't clean yourself up. Jesus cleans you up. That's his job. We come here because we need him. It doesn't matter how long you've been following him. We will always need him. All we really have is a brief reprieve from one moment to the next until we need him again. So who's messed up? Who has ego problems? Who has family problems? Emotional problems? Financial problems? Pride problems? Sin problems? Who needs God? We all do. Everybody. Who's arrived? Got it all figured out. Doesn't have any secrets. Normal, healthy, strong, secure, spiritually sufficient. Got it all together. 
Nobody. Spiritually and morally, we're all in the same boat. All we, like sheep, Isaiah says, all we, like sheep, have gone astray. That's just humanity's fate apart from the grace of God. And here is the consistent testimony, the witness of Scripture. Even though it's really countercultural, it just doesn't feel like it runs with the grain of our world. But humanity's fate, apart from the grace of God, is brokenness, inadequacy, guilt, judgment, death, and hell. We're all lost. Nobody is perfect. But that's not why you come, is it? Deep down, you knew that already. You come because of the third great truth that Jesus modeled and proclaimed. That anything is possible. Everybody's welcome. Nobody's perfect. But anything is possible. Again, this truth comes right from Jesus. He was talking with his disciples about how hard it is for those who are affluent, wealthy, rich, how hard it is for them to be saved. They were stunned because they thought, as people tend to, that being rich means you're blessed by God, that you're already saved. And so they said, well, if rich people can't be saved, who can? You find the conversation in Matthew 19. If rich people can't be saved, they ask, who can? Jesus says, with human beings, it's impossible, but not with God. With God, all things are possible. We see this when he starts the church. Remember, he says he's going to build it on the rock. Simon and his testimony. The other disciples probably are thinking, seriously, him? Peter, who leapt out of the boat and sank in the water? Faith failed him. Peter, to whom Jesus was, was forced to say, Get behind me, you Satan, because he just couldn't keep his mouth shut. Peter, who couldn't even stay awake when Jesus pleaded with him to pray through a night of anguish. Peter, who bragged Jesus, you know what? If all of these other rubble, if they abandon you, I never will. And then went on to deny him three times that very night. Peter is going to be the rock. This is the solid ground. Uh Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Because anything is possible. And then the Holy Spirit comes. And Peter stands up and preaches. And man, does he preach. And thousands of people follow Jesus. And a greedy tax collector named Zacchaeus becomes the poster boy for generosity. That's a miracle. And a five times married, shacked up Samaritan woman will become Jesus' first designated evangelist and preacher. That's a miracle. And the church's great enemy, Saul, will become its greatest champion. And Paul, through, through his words, his writings, and his teachings, will change the course of human thought and history. And the church goes on and on and on. And then one day in, in 1973 or so, a small group, a little over a dozen men and women, gather together in this community and they say, Hey, what? What if we started a little outpost of Jesus right here? Right here in, in the middle of farmer's fields in, in what would come to be Cooksville. And they did. And they prayed and they gave and they served and they loved. 
And here we are almost 60 years later. And that church that started out with only 13 or 14 now reaches hundreds of people online every week. They could have no idea that because of their faithfulness, now we'd have a ministry that that stretches, well, who knows where anymore? Not just here. We know people drive in from, from Brampton and Etobicoke and Milton and Scarborough, but not driving as much as they stay, but electronically they drive in from everywhere. But now it's our turn. You might be exploring faith. You've been poking around Google and and somehow you found us. Uh, maybe you've been checking out the church. Let me just say thank you for investing some time here. That's it's important. Take your time. I hope you feel that you can do that. We're cheering for you. But if you follow Jesus, particularly if you follow Jesus and this is your church home, I want to ask you something this morning. This is Vision Weekend. I'm going to ask you to pray, to pray fervently. I'm going to ask you to get connected in community because community is the one thing that has fallen apart in the past five months. Get into real relationship. Don't be a chronic visitor, either in person or online. Get into one of our small groups. I want Sheldon to say this week, I don't know what's going on, but I'm not going to be able to make this meeting or that meeting because my email inbox is so filled up with people who want to get connected to small groups. I just don't have time. I'm asking that you trust God and that you're generous with your finances because you know that you can't outgive the generosity of God in our lives. I'm asking you to do this in that anything is possible, Spirit of Jesus, because He's still building His church and He's building it more than ever right now in the middle of all of the adversity around us. What if because of COVID, not in spite of it, but because of COVID, what if the GTA, which is one part of our country that has never really experienced revival, could really experience one? Not not a, a one-time emotionally led, temporary wave, but a long-term, biblically grounded, chronic, lasting movement of Jesus that will turn back the tides of materialism and secularism and bring vibrant spiritual health and the transforming power of the gospel to the GTA. The thing is, he's still building his church. It's his Church. He thought of it, he created it, he authorized it, he resourced it when he had nothing. He launched it when, when there was no idea of what it would be. He continues to superintend it, no matter how badly we mess it up. And he has no intention of letting it go. Not until it fulfills the purpose for which he created it. No matter what problems it faces, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Welcome to the church. Vision Sunday. This is the ministry to which you have been called to devote your lives. Others have done it before us. Others will come after us. This is our day. This is our moment 
Let's be all in. Are you all in? Let me pray for us. God, thank you for the church. Too often we take her for granted, but there's never been anything like it. Thank you for the dream of all humanity gathered together, no barriers, no separation, nobody left out, with love and and the cross triumphant, with the compassion and the generosity and the servanthood of Jesus at the core. Thank you, God, for the church. Help every one of us who follows Jesus to be part of it and do something great. We're all in, Lord, as best as we can be. We want to be all in. We pray this in Jesus' name, and everyone agreed, and together they said, Amen. Amen.